hundreds of thousands hold their breath on Merseyside. It's Xabi Alonso for three, three is saved, and Alonso follows it in! It's wonderful! It's marvellous! It's 3-3 in the European Cup final. It's the Red Agenda on The Athletic. Uh, I'm Steve Hothersall, once again joined by James Pearce and Simon Hughes as um, we look at a hugely interesting part of uh, Liverpool's life story. Eight years ago, they agreed to be involved in a TV documentary. Being Liverpool was the title but really, did it represent being Liverpool? Let's talk with uh, Simon and James on this one. James, we'll start with yourself first. What, did it take much arm twisting to let the cameras inside Liverpool? Because it was it was way ahead of its time, wasn't it? It, it certainly was, yeah. I think in recent years, we've become used to these kind of fly-on-the-wall fo- football documentaries and they've become pretty slick and probably a lot more controlled by the clubs that have, have taken part and you think of the, the the Sunderland Till I Die one on Netflix and of course Man City Tottenham and Barcelona have been involved in them so um, yeah being Liverpool was a was ahead of its time I think um, you know, I'd, uh, I'd, I had had the uh, the series on DVD so I re-watched it all and you know, of course some of it you do you do almost watch from behind the sofa because uh some some parts of it are pretty pretty cringy, um, but it was you know at the time it was pretty groundbreaking to to throw open the doors of Melwood and and Anfield as, as they did and and let the the Fox cameras in. I think um, you know I really enjoyed putting the the piece together and speaking to the guys from Fox who did it and the ones who did the deal in the first place with Liverpool and certainly it was it was it was one that. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't something that Liverpool did for money. I think, um, from from what I was told, it, it certainly wasn't a particularly lucrative exercise. It was more, at the time, you know, you, you rewind to 2012. FSG's reign of Liverpool was still in its in its early stages, really, and they were very keen to to lift the club's profile, especially in the states. And um, and, and they saw this as a as a great kind of way to, to get increased exposure of course Fox at the time had the the Premier League TV rights in, in America as well so um but yeah I think you know probably in in terms of raising that profile it probably succeeded but I think obviously anyone who who watched it will know that uh, you know for the for the main characters in it they they ended up getting a fair amount of stick yeah you you call them characters and actually there's some some moments in there that are utterly unforgettable and I'm sure we'll go on to them within this conversation. But whether that's when you see the picture of Brendan Rodgers and his own portrait in his own house or whether it's Raheem Sterling getting told off, it provided an insight that, that may be offered, Simon, a little bit too much. Well, I just remember at the time, I sort of got a little bit excited myself about it because it, obviously you never, very rarely you get to see this, get this sort of access with... With Liverpool players and, and and I guess Liverpool management and there is a reason for that when when you think about sort of the way Liverpool has operated over you know well since the 1960s you know it's what is the Liverpool way you know it's always been clouded in secrecy hasn't it you know Liverpool never give away their secrets as a club and um, I think it, it really did sort of herald the new era really um, under FSG as they, they would have been there. I mean, I remember the the, the sort of the, the advertising campaign that they put behind it when they, they sort of tried to make Brendan Rodgers appear like this sort of the, the uh, like Jesus Christ almost. You know, there was very dramatic music and really emphatic sort of statements from the new manager. When I saw that, I remember thinking, "Oh God!" Like you know, he's he's a new manager 
fresh into a job at a club in a city that you know he's never worked in before. And I remember thinking, I'll oh, just hope he, he sort of doesn't really say anything too too daft. And um, you know, there were plenty of daft moments, I guess. And I, I think that reading James' piece this morning, and it is a great piece. I think everybody should read it. That that um, it really struck me just how sort of how misguided it was. This, it was to sort of fling, fling him in at that moment in his first year in the job because in many ways I don't think he ever recovered from that. Um, you know, he was sort of people were hoping that he might fail. Even some Liverpool fans, dare I say it, you know. He, I think he didn't walk, endear himself to many Liverpool fans by some of the things that he said in, in that, that that documentary. So yeah, it was it was strange. I mean, I, I can watch it and sort of laugh about it now because it, it sort of feels like a slightly more innocent era. You know, it's only eight years ago, isn't it? But yeah, I, I, it's still it's still worth a watch for people who who haven't seen it because I think it shows you sort of a lot about the thinking at FSG and how you know they, they were ahead of the curve a little bit. You've got to give them some credit because. If you look at football in the United States now, um, you know, there's been a, a bit of a boom there in terms of the amount of coverage that's on, you know, on a Saturday morning. I remember being in Boston in the summer and people were saying that, like, sort of watching Saturday morning football is a new window for the sporting weekends. And I think Liverpool managed to get a footprint on TV, you know, and, and get, gain some popularity off the back of this. Um, you know, as James says, I don't think they initially made lots of money from it, but it'd be interesting to see sort of the viewing figures in the US for this because, you know, football didn't have much coverage in the US at the time. So, James, you've obviously spoken to quite a few people who are involved in the concept and getting it off the ground, including those who actually made it. Did they say there was any resistance in actually being allowed inside Anfield, inside Melwood, given access to these these private moments involving the Liverpool hierarchy and players? Yeah, well, I spoke to um, Michael Bloom, who was head of original planning at, at Fox at the at the time, and and uh, Scott Boggins, who was the you know award winning executive producer on the series, and and both of those guys actually flew across to to, to Merseyside and went to Melwood on on two occasions before filming started. And uh, Michael Bloom was telling me that uh, certainly Tom Werner, Liverpool's chairman, who's got a you know been a very successful. Uh, career in, in in TV production and worked on a number of hit shows. He he kind of saw the opportunity in this, but he was very clear to Bloom and Boggins that um, you know this has you have to get the the agreement of Kenny Dalglish, his staff, and the players. You know if if they're not on board with this, then then this project isn't isn't happening. So this was in the March of 2012. So they um, they flew over, gave the presentation, um, and it, it was that was interesting because I think. Certainly, from the outside, you always imagine that that, that Kenny probably wouldn't wouldn't have uh, been particularly enthusiastic about this. But they explained that Dave Kirby, the Liverpool playwright and poet, who ended up appearing in every single episode, he he um, he was in it on the basis of Kenny's recommendation. He he'd actually written a poem um, prior to the League Cup final in in 2012 that that Kenny had used as part of his team talk and and played to the players and. Um, after that initial meeting at Melwood, he'd actually Kenny had gone gone up to his office and brought them back a, a DVD um, of of Dave Kirby's work and said, "Look, if you're going to do this project, you need to speak to Dave." So, um, although obviously by the time the, the show came out, Kenny was was long gone. Of course, you know the the um, you know the, the, the series primarily focused on Brendan Rodgers' few months in the job. Um, both Bloom and Boggins were explaining that. Um, 
you know, Kenny did have a, a, a quite a big part to play in terms of the creative route um, that they went down. And they, they said as well that, you know, a lot of the players, you know, they had to earn the trust. That that was why they said the vast majority of the of, of the stuff at home with senior players, with the likes of Steven Gerrard and, you know, at the academy with Jamie Carragher and at home with Pepe Reina and Lucas Laver. All of that stuff was right towards the end of the project when um, when they kind of had earned that that trust of of people involved. He said, um, you know, he said it, it wasn't a case of they were straight in the dressing room when Kenny was in charge. It wasn't a case that they had lots of footage from the the kind of dying embers of, of Kenny's time in charge that ended up on the cutting room floor. It was it was essentially only really in pre season that they um, that they really had the kind of the, the real kind of all-access all pass. Um, and, of course, that, that coincided with Brendan Rodgers' first days in the job. And, um, you know, I, I think certainly having spoke, spoken to people who were involved in I think I think Brendan certainly comes out of it badly. No one would, would, would argue with that. But I've got a lot of sympathy for him as well because, you know, for a 39-year-old coming from, coming from Swansea, the size of the challenge was was absolutely immense, and I think you know probably the last thing he needed was was TV cameras following him around everywhere from from day one. But he, you know, I think what's important to point out is he had no no choice in the matter. You know, this was a deal that had been done, um, you know, in in the in the March. The filming had started kind of just around the fringes in the April, and then um, so you know it when when he when he signed on the dotted line to become Liverpool manager, it was. He was told, you know, this is something you are going to be part of. Well, interestingly, I mean, as you say there, almost lumped on his shoulders, Brendan Rodgers. And, and knowing Kenny, as, as you guys would do, you'd probably think he'd be the last person to accept this sort of thing happening. Because even in that managerial tenure that he had then, he still very much w- was old school, wasn't he, Simon? When you saw him at press conferences, he was still guarded. Um, and he didn't really come across to me at that time as someone who who would take that sort of leap of faith or gamble with TV cameras. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, part of me wonders whether Kenny sort of appreciated the, how much pressure he was under at the time. You know, with, you know, you look, you look at the dates and the timeline around when these discussions happened, and you know, it was obviously Liverpool had won the League Cup against Cardiff, but after that, the end of that season. Obviously, they reached the FA Cup final, but the um, the league form, you know, sort of tailors off, and there's growing sort of concern. You know, there's a reason why Brendan Rodgers got the job and Kenny got sacked. You know, because Liverpool didn't qualify for the Champions League, and I do part of me wonders whether that was Kenny sort of realizing, you know, I'm going to have to sort of go against some of my own principles a little bit here, because as you said, he he can be even on the phone when you're talking to him in private quite a prickly character at times you know he's he's obviously a Liverpool legend but I wouldn't say he was he's the easiest person to work with or the easiest person to sort of convince at times of of, of good ideas so yeah I'm quite surprised to find Kenny was was sort of crucial in the early stages um I mean, as, as for as for Brandon, I mean, he uh, he obviously came off the back of, of of a great season at Swansea. And I remember covering a game actually when Swansea played. I think they played Bolton Wanderers and, and got a good result at, at Bolton. I think it meant that they were definitely staying in the Premier League for another season, with the possibility of moving up the league. And I remember the way doing like sort of a, a, a what what people in, in journalism, I suppose, call you know a, a Monday breakout after he'd spoken in front of the cameras and. You know, he was very sort of relaxed. Like, I, I got, the, I did sense 
Messi, who's sort of desperate to portray this sense of ease about him, you know, he's sort of had a very good answer for, for everything and would, would actually give you more detail than, than most other managers would in these situations. You know, very keen to sort of explain how he'd sort of mastered certain teams, you know, tactically. And he's very open and amongst a lot of journalists that, that obviously if a manager's telling you what he's done and his, his genuine thought process behind that, it's great, you know, he can't complain. But I do remember thinking, you know, Liverpool job is a bit different when you can't give too much away. And um, one of the things that, 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 that he was, he fought hard for actually in, in getting a Liverpool job because they, they, they originally spoke to him and told him, you know, that they wanted him to work with a, a sporting sort of director really beside him slash above him. And he wasn't keen on that. So, um, I wonder whether in the end you know the, the, this sort of deal breaker uh, of, of coming into Liverpool and working in front of the TV cameras it probably at the time mm. he probably didn't realise the impact it might have and equally it probably did feed his ego a little bit you know he was going to be centre stage uh, of, a, of a documentary I mean I must say I mean, <laughs> being on Channel 5 you know it's sort of I think that reflects where Liverpool were at at the time as well you know like if, if some if Liverpool, if, I mean Channel 5 do some great documentaries don't get me wrong but I'd imagine if this sort of access was being granted now, you know, Liverpool would be able to to um, to claim a, a very handsome fee for, for that access. At the time, I think they were sort of desperate for people to engage in Liverpool. And um, I've got to say, I mean, I, I, I can watch it now and I look at Brendan, some of Brendan's comments, and as, as, as you say, it's, it's sort of an unprecedented sort of access to a, a Premier League club in, in this era because I know there were documentaries made about football clubs in, in the 90s and even in the 80s but that sort of access tailed away in, in the new age of control and media management and this was as James says the, the first one which um, which opened doors really um, but as I said in the long term I think Brendan really really paid for that I think Kenny's probably glad that he wasn't the one who had his personality scrutinised by the documentary at the, uh, the end of the day Let, let's face it um for Brendan Rodgers, his personality was part of the reason why perhaps things didn't go in the right direction for him at the end of the day at Liverpool. And I think, arguably, within this documentary, and it, there's lots of bits that you've picked out here within your piece, James, uh, different quotes that he makes. Every player I see as my own son. Um, player plus environment equals behaviour. He, he probably exposed too much of what his personality was about behind the scenes. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair, and but I think you do have to put that in the context of of where he was in his career at that time. I think he he I think he probably was still trying to find himself and trying to get to grips with kind of how do I want to portray myself? You know, coming into a a club like Liverpool. I mean, let's let's not forget in 2012 when he did come in. You know, there was it really did divide opinion because. Um, you know, he didn't have this amazing CV that he could point to full of trophies. Um, you know, there was a lot of fans who didn't want Kenny to be to be sacked. There was other fans at the time who who were hoping that Rafa Benitez would be brought back. So, you know, I think he, I think he felt the need to probably to play up to the cameras a little bit as well. Um, and and you know, I don't think that 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 did him any favors. I think, and you know, one one thing that really occurred to me was, can you imagine how much better? it would have been and how much better in a better light it would have portrayed Brendan Rodgers if it had been 
12 months further down the line that, that Liverpool had decided to embark on a project like this because, you know, it was, I mean, the, the, the club wasn't in great shape in that summer of 2012. Um, yeah, you only have to look at, you know, in the documentary, the fuss that's made about certain signings that are coming in. And, you know, you've got, you've got Ian Eyre giving a guided tour around Melwood to Samad Yezel and talking about you know, what the, the coup of Nuri Sahin, who, you know, of course that loan was cancelled within months. You've got, you know, bigging up of Fabio Barini and, and of course Joe Allen was the other big signing that summer. So, you know, Liverpool wasn't wasn't in, in, in great shape at that time. And so, you know, and then, and then even in the final episode, you know, there's a lot around the end of the deadline that, that summer when, let's not forget, you know, Brendan Rodgers was, was fuming about the fact that he missed out on Clint Dempsey and Liverpool were, were willing to, you know, to throw Jordan Henderson into the mix as, as a mate weight in that deal. So, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't really capture a particularly great, Kind of few months in in terms of in in terms of Liverpool's you know, history and you know and of course some of the things you know it was you know you, you think of the, the three envelopes where you know as Jamie Carragher points out in the piece you know Rogers got an awful lot of stick for this you know I've already written down in in these envelopes the names of three people who are going to let us down this season you know because you know, clearly there was no names in the envelopes but as Carragher pointed out it was an Alex Ferguson trick that he'd, he'd used previously and he'd probably got it off jock steam before that it was nothing new the difference was that ferguson didn't have tv cameras on him um at, at the time and then you know you've got the rogers and raheem sterling spat which um you know interestingly you know the, the guys at fox said that was actually edited a fair bit in the in the final cut um you know i think at one point liverpool were pretty keen for it to be pulled completely but um, but no, they, I think in the end there was a compromise. But then Liverpool weren't weren't best pleased about the fact that then that footage was actually used as the as the trailer to promote the the entire series. So um, yeah, I, I you know I think for for Brendan Rodgers, I think it just came at a, a bad time. And I think you know, you only have to look at the way he conducts himself now. He's a very very different personality. I, I think now. I think he I think he I think he learned he, he you know he learned the hard way. I think over that period because because of the backlash that, that followed. So eight years on, Simon, do you think Brendan Rodgers actually regrets taking part in this documentary? I don't think so. I mean, he was, he, he was how old was he? 38, 39 at the time? 39, yeah. 39, you know, one of the youngest managers in Liverpool's history, I think only behind Kenny Dalglish. Um, I mean, I think there's certain elements of it it's, that he, he was a little bit unlucky in the sense that when uh, he does the the old uh, envelope trick, you know that that's before a game that he lose three nil to West Brom on the opening day of the season. You know if he if he does that and they win, as you know the the form at the start of the season was was indifferent, as James says. You know they were they didn't really pull up any trees. You know they, they did struggle at the start of that season, but things gradually got better as the course as the season went on. Um, I mean, he doesn't strike me as the sort of person that does. Many regrets, Brendan Rodgers. I don't think he'd sit there and think, "Oh, I wish I'd done it differently." Because at the end of the day, you know, the the following season was was an incredible season, and I know it's easy to poke fun at Brendan Rodgers, and I'm probably the worst for it sometimes. But you know, he he did contribute massively towards that season, whether people will accept it or not. I mean, obviously, Luis Suarez was 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 an incredible player in, in that campaign, but but, but Rodgers. Uh, set up a team was, was sensible enough to set up a team that, that, that brought his best qualities out and um, 
you know, one way or another, it, 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 you know, found his way through a few tactical conundrums in that season. People forget he switched the shape, the shape a lot, you know. And I just think he was probably a bit too young to take on that job based on the experience that he's had before. I think, you know, you've got to give the owners a bit of criticism here because he was, he might in a, in a different life, he might have been the right man, but he was certainly at the wrong time. I think, I think it caught up with him eventually. Is is inexperienced and is. You know, football management's such an all-consuming job. I mean, people say they understand the strength and the power and the size of Liverpool, but you know, Brendan Rodgers have been, you know, on a on a on a journey. That sounds like Brendan Rodgers speaks, doesn't it? But he'd been on a sort of a, a route from Chelsea's youth teams to Liverpool, which had taken 15, 20 years. Where you know he'd been on the job twenty-four-seven. He's not thinking about the social dynamics of Liverpool as a city. The way people are gonna judge you every single decision that you make every single thing you say you're going to be judged I, I always felt with Brendan you know if, if he didn't have to do press conferences and was just left to coaching he'd actually probably be a lot more respected because you know we sort of touched on it already he, he does try to impress I think I think that's the, the thing the sort of stuff that he says would impress a youth team you know player and a young player but I think a more sort of hardened fan who's heard all this sort of speak before is always wary of of big promises really um, and that's where he came undone he was on the back foot from day one but with this documentary maybe he could have conducted himself slightly differently but this is where the club comes into it I think Liverpool had lost its institutional memory at this point you know people could have better advised them around it they were just obviously headlong into this quite clearly you reading James' piece you know the they were a long way into um, doing this documentary before Brendan's name had even come up in the discussions, I think. So he could have been helped out a little bit more. But yeah, I mean, there was a trust that Brendan would just get everything right at that time. And clearly he didn't have the tools, as he would say, to, 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 to navigate his way through a particularly you know, uh, tricky PR exercise. Jeff scored the winner two years ago. He's up against Duda. Will he hand Liverpool the European Cup? Yes! Yes! European champions! Well, this is the Red Agenda on The Athletic. I'm Steve Hothersall. Simon Hughes and James Pearce join me every week and you can read James's brilliant article on being Liverpool on The Athletic site now. Uh, the football season might be on hold, but The Athletic's still home to 400 of the best sports writers in the business, still working really hard telling unique and engaging stories. The Athletic can keep you connected to the team you love. Sign up for a 90-day free trial. See for yourself. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod for a 90-day free trial. This is the Red Agenda. Well, you wonder editorially what control Liverpool had on being Liverpool. Of course, there's teams now like Spurs and Manchester City and Sunderland that have opened their doors, but I would imagine they might have learnt a few lessons from how Liverpool were portrayed eight years ago. Yeah, I think so. I think I think you only have to look probably at the at the Man City one and, you know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, from the perspective of you know, the insight into Pep Guardiola's team meetings and talks and all the rest of it. But it's certainly not warts and all. There's nothing in that Man City one that, that makes you cringe. And it's you can see that 
you know, Man City's kind of you know fingerprints are all over it. I think the difference would be in Liverpool, and and th- that was one of the interesting things I was looking to establish when I was writing it was from speaking to the guys who actually did the deal in the first place, and then uh, Scott Boggins, the executive producer. You know, what what kind of c- control did Liverpool had, and, and and the answer is it wasn't. It certainly wasn't anything like what you would get these days with, with, with elite clubs in terms of the demands that were made. He he described it as editorial consultation, um, that essentially there was this kind of small committee that, you know, Ian Eyre was certainly one of the people at Liverpool on it. You know, there was representatives from Fox, representatives from FSG. Um, and he, he said that, yeah, of course, you know, kind of raw, raw footage and copy was sent was was sent across and you know they had the opportunity to flag stuff up but the agreement from the start was 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 you know the main thing was that we are not going to reveal anything that is going to give an opponent any kind of advantage um you know I, I think i think scott boggins referred to it as x's and o's which uh, you know i think i think um it essentially means kind of tactics and strategy if if there was anything in that it kind of that related then then the deal was that that fox would definitely pull that but um no in, in terms of the other stuff um he, he said there was you know it certainly wasn't the case that 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 liverpool were kind of like you know had had the right to say right this 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 and this so what about maybe the piece with with ian aaron he's on his harley davidson his leather jacket um driving along the strand in the city center it's it's perhaps not the image that liverpool football club would quite desire but you know would Liverpool have had the right to say don't show that they, they certainly could have made it a conversation my my information from speaking to the people who, who, who made it and who were in those discussions was that it was it wasn't one of the things flagged up that that Ian Eyre was was quite happy for for those things to go in you know both him on his his Harley Davidson and you know I think probably one of the more forgettable moments was when he suggested to Rogers and Joe Allen, that Joe Allen should be taking the '69 shirt. Now, you know, I, I, I think I think most Liverpool fans would cringe a bit when you when you watch that back. But um, but no, the, he was you know someone who was involved in those discussions said that was that was never when 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 that was watched before before it was um, it, it was obviously given the green light. That wasn't one of the things that was that was flagged up. I think you know from what I was told there was. There was a few things that were flagged up. I think one, as I said earlier on, was that the Rogers Sterling spat in terms of what if any, what part if any was going to be allowed to be aired on that. There was interesting. There was also a bit in there. I was told that you know, Rogers talking about his new car, and there were concerns that you know he just came across as a you know a bit kind of just a bit misplaced in terms of gloating about some new car. And then I think there was another. The other thing was. Liverpool had picked up on the portrait on the wall, and um, and with these things, you know, it wasn't the case that Liverpool automatically had the right to to get them taken out. It was more, you know, Fox Fox and Liverpool debated the issue, and then if there was anything that needed to be decided, FSG effectively had the deciding vote. And I think certainly for FSG, I think they they felt that having done this agreement with Fox, that they kind of had a duty to to not just take out anything. That um, you know that 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 might not be absolutely perfect because, um, as I said, the deal from the start was was just not to not to reveal tactics and strategy and and, and most other stuff that Fox picked up along the way. Um, they were allowed to use. Almost addicted to to watch 
almost a little bit embarrassing as well if you're a, a Liverpool fan and allowed other supporters to poke fun. Do, does anyone come out of it well, Simon, at the end of the day? Or, or did they for Liverpool? <laughs> um, well, I don't think Ian Eyre did. Um, you know, I've got to be honest, I mean, I've got my own opinions about Ian Eyre as, as sort of an operator and did some good things for Liverpool around the, the stadium, but uh, around the, the new stand, main stand, but... In terms of the way that the club operated around his tenure, you know, I've written about it before, and I don't think he's necessarily the most positive influence of the club. I mean, it's quite interesting reading James's piece just about how, like, sort of, you know, the, the senior players clearly felt uncomfortable about it. You know, senior players are always sort of a bit paranoid about how they're going to be presented, whereas the, the younger players, players like Adam Morgan and Ryan McLaughlin, actually quite look back at it quite fondly, you know, but I suppose that they will do because that, that summer when they go to the US and, and play in front of big crowds, nothing's ever going to take that away from them, is it? You know, it's it's sort of, Adam Morgan scores a goal in front of, what was it, 50,000, 50,000 people, his dad had flown over, you know, it was a high point of his career. You know, Ryan McLaughlin there talking about, you know, being 17 years old, being um, in, the, in the dressing room with Daniel Craig and, Mark and Francesco Totti, like a few weeks earlier, he'd only been playing with his mates in Belfast in exactly the same boots. You know, these, these sorts of people, for them, you know, it's, it, I'm sure they look back at it and, 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 and sort of it makes them happy. You know, it's got to really because, you know, they've got something there which they'll be able to watch and, and show their, their, you know, their children and, and whatever in years to come. I mean, I, I've got to be honest, I don't think, I think with a documentary, it's very difficult to... Um, to look good, really, in, in, in these circumstances, in the, in the sort of the boundaries that have been set. Because I agree with what James says, you know, sort of the, the one that we've watched um, with Manchester City certainly has a sheen on it. You know, I think that the only area where the manager or the, whoever's in charge or the players can't really fake it is inside the dressing room. And I think that's where... I don't think there's probably quite enough sort of dressing room reflection. I think I think people will have a, a greater respect for sort of seeing what happens in the dressing room um, because you can't fake that. You know, it's in the moments before a game. Whereas, I guess, you know, if you're going behind somebody's, behind the scenes in somebody's house, you can make it look a certain way. Um, it's just making me laugh then, just reading the, the quote from, from Jamie Carragher about Jay Spearing, you know, he was on, <laughs> on the show... <laughs> <laughs> on the show, he was on there more than anybody else, and then by the time the, the show was uh, was being screened, he, he'd actually been sold. So, it there's there was an element of it being quite disjointed, I think, you know, like sort of it was like this sort of brave new era at Liverpool when actually, you know, half of the people that they've interviewed, including Jamie, uh, including uh, Charlie Adam and, and Jay Spearing, had, had left the club by the time it was on air. So, I think that just reflected, I think, I suppose, the, the slightly um disjointed if not chaotic nature of, <laughs> of what was going on at Liverpool at the time if, if you're Michael Bloom or if you're Fox James I presume it achieved its required objective uh, I think if you, you put in your piece in the US it's called hate watching uh, you can get a lot of engagement positive and negative yeah 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 and I, and I think that was the interesting thing speaking to a wide range of people involved in it that the that, that where you know I think Jamie Carragher uses the word, you know, a bit embarrassed and cringing when he was watching it back. And um, but, but certainly, I think for Fox, 
it, you know, they 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 regarded it then and still regard it. Michael Bloom and Scott Boggins as 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 mission accomplished. And I can I can fully understand why because you know they their kind of mission from the outset was you know from those discussions with FSG was we we want to raise Liverpool's profile um in the states primarily but also in in the far east um you know this this is about taking Liverpool to a new audience and and I think that's probably where you know the the reaction both Bloom and Boggins said was very different you know for example in America compared to the UK because I think I think that just shows the challenge as well of trying to create something which you know, is, is going to be really informative and interesting for your diehard Liverpool fans who know the club inside out, but is also going to be able to to kind of lure in new viewers. I mean, I think Michael Bloom was telling me that Fox even kind of aired it on the National Geographic channel in the in the States. It was all about trying to get it to a, a new audience. And certainly in terms of, you know, it was brought up all around the world, he was saying. I think one of the anecdotes he, he told me, Michael Bloom, was that I think when the first episode aired in, in Sweden, 40% of all people in Sweden that watched TV that night at that time were, were watching Be in Liverpool. Um, so I think certainly from the exposure and the profile viewpoint, you know, it was they, they regarded it as a as a success. I think, um, you know, and, and as, as Michael Bloom said, you know, I think when you've made something, probably the worst thing is for people not to talk about it. And um, they certainly didn't have to worry about that with being Liverpool because, um, you know, it was, whether whether people loved it or loathed it, there was uh, no shortage of feedback. Not sure Liverpool will be uh, quite as happy to open their doors now. In fact, uh, I think Jurgen Klopp referring to um, a recent game against Salzburg uh, said that he wouldn't let cameras in the dressing room. No chance. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember after the uh, the Rebel Salzburg game at Anfield um, earlier this season, if we can still call it this season, and um, obviously the, the the American manager was given a very rousing team talk uh, to his players, which you know nearly 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 paid off for him, didn't it? They, they stormed back into the game having been three 0 down, and you know Brendan was speaking, I think, specifically about that that the release of that footage, you know, on the, on Rebels website and it just reminds me really just I guess of how how differently people interpret uh, the written words and I guess what they see because as I said to you earlier like when, when Brendan had in his prior job had, had spoken about his methods and, and tried to articulate how he felt about the game and, and what he was trying to do I think when you see that in written form people can rationalise it and, and sort of think oh actually that, that's quite Interesting to some extent, you know, if Brendan Rodgers had granted in, uh, access to, to I guess, the written press and, and we'd have gone into his house and been able to write about it. It may have not seemed quite as, I guess, emphatic as it does on a TV camera where, you know, you, you obviously have a TV camera, you see things as they are said, but they become a lot more definitive in many ways. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think sometimes it's a good thing. For, for some people, it, it could be quite a bad thing. And he... Um, I think Ryan McLaughlin even says, you know, in the piece that so there's a lot of talk about straight away, even amongst the players, about Rogers being a bit of a David Brent type character. And you know, let's not forget, you know, the office. It did feel like the office at times. I mean, I love the office, and some of the quotes that he that he sort of reeled off. It did did feel like sort of you know this this new age sort of think speak that he you know that, that, that I don't think many people when they're doing a documentary get very far in the public's eye. After that, whereas, again, I say, really stress in the, in the written format when people read it and 
it, it doesn't have quite same the same impact. I don't know whether that's a good reflection on the media or a bad reflection or, or a bit of both in some ways. But um, as I said, Brendan had gone into sort of some unprecedented ground. If you like, he, I don't think he was quite aware of just how this was seen to a lot of people when when he when he spoke and. Um, you know, thinking about Jürgen Klopp now, I just he already provides sort of a lot of the entertainment, really. I, th- I think, you know, when, when we see him in front of the cameras, I don't think... The one thing I like about Klopp is, and uh, we, I've spoken to quite a lot of people about this, you know, about whether he is as genuine as he seems and all of my experiences of him, you know, whether it's sort of in front of the camera, off camera. I think off camera he can be a bit more... Um, not as playful sometimes, but... I don't think he's trying to impress you. I don't ever get the impression with Klopp he's trying to impress you, which which was always a problem for Brendan. Check out being Liverpool, the inside story. Uh, James has written it. It's on The Athletic now. And you can get that 90-day free trial at theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod. Fascinating stuff uh, to read about. Now, this Sunday, The Athletic will be hosting a Premier League awards night. Our writers and uh, podcast hosts like myself have voted across a number of categories. And from 7pm on Sunday, we're announcing the winners. But before then, make sure you listen to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast every day this week where we will be announcing the shortlist for each category. We're starting on Tuesday with Young Player of the Year. That's followed on Wednesday by Underrated Player. On Thursday, the Team of the Year. Then on Friday, you can hear the shortlist for the main award, the Premier League Player of the Season. So that's a new show every day this week on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast. And to find out the winners on Sunday night, make sure you subscribe and download the Athletic app. And you can get a subscription to the Athletic right now for free. Right, let's have a look at who the boys have voted for. We'll start with um, player of the season and um, presumably in your six picks, James, uh, Liverpool have dominated. You know, rightly so, considering the the record-breaking season the club's had. I think Kevin De Bruyne, you'd have to find room for him with the form that he produced for for Manchester City. But yeah, aside from that, my my six um, are made up with Sadio Mane, Jordan Henderson, Virgil van Dijk, Trent Alexander-Arnold and... And Mo Salah, and um, yeah, for me, the the winner is Jordan Henderson. I think um, he, he he certainly deserves it. I think more than anyone. Okay, Simon, would you agree? Are there names you might alter there? Uh, well, I mean, I, I had um, I had two Liverpool players in my top two, and they were Jordan Henderson at one, and Trent at two. But then I had Jamie Vardy at three. Um, I mean, I think it's easy to forget, sort of what he's done this season, you know, with his, the number of goals that he scored, leading scorer in the Premier League. I think in terms of, um, you know, his mi- overall minutes on the pitch, his ratio um, is the highest as well. So without him, you know, I just think it's the hardest thing to do in football, isn't it? Put the ball in the back of the net. So he, he, he comes in at number three for me. I'm just trying to remember who else I put now. I mean, Kevin, Kevin De Bruyne was at, was at number five. Um and I had Wijnaldum at number six. I just think Wijnaldum's done an incredible, had an incredible season for Liverpool. You know, he, he was, for me, consistently one of the top three players on the pitch whenever he's played. Um, and I also had Sadio Mane in there as well at number four. Um, you know, I, I, I think I left out, I must have left out Mo Salah, which is a bit of an oversized thing on my part. But, um, yeah, I mean, the the the. the, the most of the, the best players this season have mainly been in a Liverpool shares, plus one or two others. Um, 
I mean, you, you could have there, there, were, there were arguments for Van Dijk, even Allison. I know Allison hasn't played um, played as many games as he has in the previous season, but I think when he hasn't been there, you know, Liverpool have missed him, and when he has been there, he, he's generally just been very consistent. So, you know, it's I can understand an argument for anybody, but I suppose we have to choose six. So an hour to down to those. Yeah, I, I went for Jordan Henderson and Trent as the top two, but my my others were Sadio Mane. I put Allison in the in the six. I know we missed a bit through injury, but it's sensational. Kevin De Bruyne, and as an outside. Shout just because I think Wolves have been incredible. I put Adama Traore in there, and and you know it's a bit like you going for Vardy, isn't it? I think yeah. that there are players who've been exceptional. Well, I I would say of all the players that have like sort of play, performed against Liverpool this season, I'd say Traore's probably caused them the most problems. Um, certainly at Molyneux, I know Liverpool won that game two one, but I think when Andy Robertson looks back on, on this season, you know he probably. I would imagine would admit that he gave him his toughest test. You know, he was outstanding that night. He was, he was really, really good. Um, so yeah, I mean, if it had been choosing a top ten, I probably would have had Traore in there as well because, you know, I don't see many Wolves games, but the ones that I have seen, he's been superb. And uh, be quite interested to see what happens with him. You know, even when football gets going again, because I'd imagine a player with his skill set, he, he's just he's quite a unique footballer, isn't he? I, mean, I, I quite enjoy watching him play you would seem to be sort of an ideal Liverpool player in some ways Wouldn't because of his power his fitness you know he, he sort of fits that profile of player but it's just um, I'd imagine Wolves will be asking for a lot of money for his to take him away from, from Molyneux now. But but then I can't really give a strong case as to why he's in ahead of Mo Salah. A bit like you leaving Salah out of the six. Let's, <laughs> let's go to the, the young player. Of the is, it, is that just completely obvious, James? Yeah, yeah. Trent Alexander-Arnold has has to win that. I think you know, I was asked to pick a, a young Liverpool player of the year last week. I didn't actually go for Trent Alexander-Arnold for the, for the simple reason that I thought it was almost a bit too obvious, and and he and he and he's also going to be a you know a, a very strong contender for the for the main player of the year prize. And you know I actually based it on a young player that had made more to progress with his development than anyone else over the course of this season. And and for me that was Curtis Jones. When you look at where he was playing under 23s football in in at the at the start of back in August and to the point now where you know he's been a match winner in the Merseyside derby he's captain Liverpool the youngest captain in the club's history um and you know Liverpool are relatively relaxed about Adam Lallana walking away as a free agent because they see Curtis Jones as 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 perfect in terms of playing a greater role going forward but um but yeah it, it, when you look at in in terms of Certainly, if you were looking at the PFA Young Player of the Year, that is a no-brainer based on the Premier League this season. I mean, Trent Alexander-Arnold, I think, was it 12 Premier League assists already? Um, already equaled the the record he set for most from a defender in, in a top-flight season that he set last season in Liverpool. I've still got nine games to go, which which we hope they, uh, they will complete. So, yeah, I think, you know, that... That is the the absolute one horse race, the, the the young player of the year award across the Premier League. I think you know, you'd probably throw into the mix the likes of you know Jack Grealish and James Madison and maybe Tammy Abraham and Mason Mount at um, at Chelsea, but you know, none of those can can lay a glove on Trent in terms of contribution over the course of this season. And let's switch to another category. Finally, a goal of. The season now. Now my vote for this one was Son's incredible run against Burnley 
and the finish because the energy levels, the the skill, everything on that uh, was just outstanding. But Simon, where have you gone for your goal of the season? At the risk of repeating myself, which I am. I mean, I've had Trent, me player of the year. Well, I mean, top three for player of the year, and then young player of the year as well. But uh, you know, I I think his goal against uh, Leicester for mm. me was the goal of the season. When you think of the the build up to that goal and the finish as well, I just. It just rounded off like a perfect Liverpool performance, and you know it was just so smooth. You know, you sort of had the sort. Of, it was the sort of goal that you just dream of. You know, it had a bit of everything: skill, power. You know, made it look easy. You know, Liverpool were just relentless that night. So for me, it was the Trent goal because I remember afterwards. You know, you, you can always sort of gain a lot by what former players and you know and rivals and active players at other clubs think. And I know obviously Javier Mascarano. Um, has got his links with Liverpool and he's a great player for Liverpool. But I remember him tweeting after the game, just talking about that goal and the way Trent had played that night. I mean, it was it was just an absolutely outrageous performance from him and, you know, topped off with, for me, I, I think that was the goal of the season for me. Fab, well, uh, don't forget this Sunday, The Athletic is hosting that Premier League Awards night. There's loads of uh, different categories there. And if you want to find out the winners, make sure you subscribe and download The Athletic app. Uh, you get a subscription to The Athletic right now for free. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod. Let's go to the uh, the Red Agenda inbox. Some great stuff on here. Let's start with uh, with Ollie Hoare, who's um, sent in this message saying, what are your personal favourite cult heroes? From over the years, my personal favourite uh, is Dirk Kite. Didn't stop running and scored so many crucial goals. What well, what defines a cult hero and who was your cult hero, James? Oh yeah, Dirk, Dirk Kite is a very good one actually in terms of um, in terms of ticking all those boxes. I think um, another one for me would be TT Kamara. Um, someone who you know didn't spend a huge amount of time at Liverpool, but I think just just really really endeared himself to fans in terms of you know playing with a with a smile on his face and um, did score some important goals for the club. Um, and then I think I think I think also another cult hero that that, that who, who fits the bill for me is Jimmy Triori. Um, Someone again, you know, he would be the first to admit he wasn't the most most gifted footballer to ever pull on the Liverpool shirt. But I just love I just love his story. When you look back at you know in in what was it the January of that two thousand and four five season um, when he scores the, the the you know the horrendous own goal at, at Burnley and all the all the abuse that that he endures and then he, he ends up being part of a Liverpool team that against all the odds wins the. The Champions League, and he's 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 a really really nice fella, Jimmy Traore as well. I know it. You know, Liverpool Football Club still means a huge amount to him. So it's yeah, cult heroes. It's not always the most gifted. I think it's the ones that 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 you know, with their personalities and and the way they go about their business, have that special connection with fans that that make you remember them lot long after they've moved on. Simon, who who have you got that special connection yeah. with? Oh, I've got I've got to be honest. I'm not one of those sorts of people who like. You know, buying the cult hero thing. I think it tends to be for clubs that aren't doing particularly well. Um, you know, but I think uh, there's one who springs to mind who's still playing. I mean, Divock Origi's got to be a cult hero, really, because he's, you wouldn't say that he's an, you know, he's an established starter. You know, there's only that period when uh, Jürgen Klopp first came in, and he, he obviously, the back end of the, the first season when he was, was at Liverpool, he, he obviously played a lot of games and would have been considered first pick, but 
he's never been first pick, but he scored so many important goals. And you know, it doesn't matter whatever he does now; he can do whatever he wants. He can, you know, miss a half full of chances for Liverpool at any point in his career, and people will still be able to point towards the fact that he always scores against Everton, and that he has obviously scored a goal in the Champions League final. Yeah, that, that is cult hero status, isn't it? Uh, let's move from there to uh, Dan, who says, if the season's extended, will Liverpool set the record for the longest time ever spent at the top of the table? Have, have you two been in conversations with our expert statisticians, Jed Ray? <laughs> That's a That's great question. Simon, that. Yeah, um, I have no idea is, is the answer, but I'd imagine it has to be true, doesn't it? I mean, Liverpool have been, I think it's right in saying, Liverpool have been top since the opening day of the season, since... Is that is that right? I don't think they've surrendered that position, have they, at any point? So yeah, I mean, it's I, got I to be a record, it's what, isn't it? Yeah, it's got to be a record. So yeah, it's, I mean, let's just say not, it's a record. Yeah, it's a record. <laughs> the firm have decided it's a record. Uh, Johnny wants to know how the transfer window is going to look. Will it be open? On the regular time, has anything been said on this? Uh, will it be pushed slightly later? I mean, I've I've not heard the the conversation. There's other things that have been spoken about first, but James. Uh, well, FIFA came out the other week, didn't they, and 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 said that you know essentially confirming that the transfer window would be would be moved, and they were also you know of course open to this idea that because there seems to be a lot of concern at some clubs that with, with players' contracts ending at the end of June, that that essentially that, that this season has to be completed by that date um, because of the, the, the potential ramifications of that happening. And FIFA obviously coming out and saying that, as far as they're concerned, players are under contract till June the 30, 31st or whatever. The... Um, you know, they essentially the, that that was a contract designed for them to remain there for the rest of the season, uh, and and that's how FIFA, FIFA see it. So, um, no, I mean, in terms of dates for the transfer window, that that has not been confirmed yet because, of course, you know, you can't you can't have a situation where 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 the window is open and and players can 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 move clubs before this when when the hope at the moment is still obviously for football to resume. Um, you know, the last I heard was you know probably the best case scenario, the back end of June behind closed doors. Um, so you couldn't have a situation where you know football does start again in late June and then the window opens as as it would normally do at the start of July. That would be nonsensical if you've still got eight or nine rounds of Premier League games to to go. So um, so no, I, I think it'll have a huge impact on the transfer window, not just in terms of the dates of it, but also in terms of the amount of business that that gets done because. You know, as as someone in Liverpool told me recently, that you know what, what football clubs hate is uncertainty, and and that's what they've got at the moment. No one knows how long this is going to go on for. They don't really know what the the financial cost is going to be, and and you know how quickly those revenue streams are going to come back, and what kind of hit they're going to take. So, you know, no top club in their right mind is is on the brink of, you know, spending 50, 60, 70 million pound on a player in the, in the in the current environment. Uh, just on revenue streams, John has um, sent this uh, question. And going forward, do you expect FSG to start taking larger dividends out of LFC to cover losses in their other business interests interests and sports franchises? Um, I, I have no idea how this sort of stuff works. Indeed, if it's anything like that, Simon, have you? Does that question make um, make sense with you? Well, I, I, I'd be amazed if they did because they know about just how negative that 
would be received. I mean, obviously we've been there before with, with the owners where they've made, you know, some decisions which they've, they've backtracked on. But if it ever became apparent that they were, were pulling money out of Liverpool to save other businesses, then I think that, you know, that there'd be a clock ticking on their ownership, to be mm. honest. Um, I mean, they're, they're going to be under FSG. Every every business in the world is under pressure at the moment. Um I don't think there's a business that this isn't affecting. In in a, well, there's obviously one or two businesses that it's 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 affecting in a positive way, you know, because the demand for certain things. But but in terms of big big businesses, which are, are linked to football clubs, every football club is going to be more or less struggling um, throughout this process, unless I guess you're owned by a state like Manchester City, who. I suppose can afford to absorb this without it having too much of an impact. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, th- th- there's going to be some difficult decisions made. I-, I would, I would imagine it. The longer this goes on, I mean, I, I suspect that the first thing that-, that Liverpool have to get right is is sort of what happens with the players' contracts and as how and when they earn money. Because as we've written about over the last couple of uh, weeks, that-, that Liverpool's revenues have stopped at the moment and that. That does have an impact, and the biggest, um, the, the the biggest area where all the money sort of goes into is the player wages. So uh, they're going to have to navigate themselves through that tricky situation first. How they do that, um, I think, is a constantly moving situation, which James reported on, well, or partly reported on last week with Ollie Kay. Um, that you know they've had the first conversations about that. Right, we'll finish on this one. Uh, lighter-hearted note. This is from Ash who um, says, what's the best press box you've ever sat in? And was it Burton Albion in 2016, of course, when Liverpool won 5-0? Uh, but it's a good question. Best and worst press boxes. So we, we've all had to uh, visit different grounds over the years. So let's reel out three absolute shockers. I'll kick it off for you. The AFC Wimbledon press box. Oh, you've stolen my thunder. Oh, Goodness, that wasn't even a press box. I think I was in the the crowd, to be honest, at that point. I had someone else's sandwiches on my lap while I was doing the commentary. Uh, James, where are you going? Do you know what, Steve? I can actually beat that from the same same game because the the written press overflow for the – when Liverpool played AFC Wimbledon in the FA Cup, I think it was January 2015, um, was actually on top of the gents' toilets. Um, And it was (laughs) – it was you had you had to climb up this ridiculously dangerous precarious ladder to get on top of this these porter cabins and it was it was kind of set back from the stand in the corner it was the strangest view i've ever had for to cover a game as a as a journalist because you were you were kind of i was about kind of maybe 5 meters back from the corner flag right right in the very far corner of the ground and i couldn't actually see one of the goals so in fact I think Steven Gerrard scored twice that night and certainly I think it was his second one. I've actually never seen the goal. Um because I you know the because the the stand jutted out um in in front of me you just couldn't uh, yeah that was that's a bad and, one. And for most of the game I was also I was I was genuinely fearful about how I was actually going to get off it at the end of the at the end of the night because um it was cold and I didn't fancy my chances getting down Aww. that icy ladder. I'll take my sandwiches every day of the week as opposed to being above the gents' toilet. Let, let's uh, <laughs> find out what Simon's had to endure. Si? Well, th- there was a period in my life where I was reporting for I say, uh, a newspaper and they'd send me a lot to Stoke. I seem to get the Stoke games and 
it's not necessarily a bad press box, but it's just, I'd say it's the conditions. You, you sort of, Stokes Grounds, like right on the edge of town, where you're pretty much almost in the countryside and the wind just blows in. You're on, on the back row of the main stands. I remember once just almost freezing, you know, like it was that cold. It was definitely the coldest press box I think I've ever been in. Um, so I'm judging it not necessarily on facilities or view, but just, just the actual working conditions and how cold, unreasonably cold it can get. Right, we'll do the best ones next week. But there you go, Stokes thrown in there, an <laughs> AFC Wimbledon. Um, the guy who's asked the question, Ash, is actually the press officer at Burton Albion, so he's obviously looking for some positivity there. Uh, they, they were a lovely club, though. They yeah. were. We should we should give a positive comment to Burton. They were they were very very accommodating. Good stuff. Uh, look, that was the red agenda. Thank you to our guys. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to the Athletic. Tons of great content. Loads of brilliant articles written by those two fellas, Simon Hughes and James Pierce. And we'll see you next week once again for the Red Agenda. Music.